Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great work being done by scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research and fellowships and grants of different kinds. One such scholar joins me today. Juen Juen Peng is Associate Professor of History at Georgia Southern University. Professor Pong, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes, so to speak. What is it uh, you were researching and writing about? Um, I'm currently um, just start a new project about DuPont's business in China from the late 1940s to the early 1950s. And I try to um, find out when and how and um, why did DuPont close their Shanghai hot headquarters and move to Hong Kong? And then mm, soon they decided to close their Hong Kong office and entirely withdraw from the China market. So I'm looking at this um, crucial moment in Chinese business economic history and the years right before 1949 and after 1949 to see what kind of major transition, transformation it experienced and what's the personal um, experience of those entrepreneurs, those managers in China, and both the foreign ones and the Chinese one. And, and and trying to understand how the changing um, political environment, how the changing economic policy in China, and also the changing um, geopolitical environment in the globe and shaped their, their personal experience and also shaped the fate of their business. And that's what I'm doing now. And currently, um, I, I only focus on the late 1940s and the 1950s. And most likely, that's going to lead to an article, a research article. And I'm hoping that maybe in the future, I can expand the project into a book. And I'm still looking, I hope I can find more material, uh, archive material, or maybe chances to do interview and to, to understand how DuPont business returned to China a couple of decades later in the 1980s. And, uh, and when, when China reopened up, when there's the economic reform started and, and the changing business environment in China and also the changed um, China-US relations urged the business to return to the China market. And I, I think if I can put the two stories together is going to be very interesting and also it helps us to understand the, the Chinese business development in the long 20th century, help us to understand the changing China-US relations, especially economic relations, but this obviously involved the political um, um, diplomatic relations during this longer 
time span. And, and I think that's going to be a great book project. But currently, I just got started and I, I got some great archive material from Hackley, thanks to the uh, Hackley funding. And I, I'm still working to see if I can get some breakthrough about the later time period. Mm -hmm. Well, what was DuPont doing in China in the 1940s? Um, they sell stuff. They sell um, dye stuff. And they started with the, with indigo, the blue dyes. And mm -hmm. later on, they expanded to other colors like black. Um, but they And they also expanded to um, some other chemical products like rubber, but mostly dye stuff. Dye stuff sold to textile industry that helps to, um, that used to dye cotton clothes and mostly used by dyers and 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 that's they in another word they they, they weren't like a trading firm mm -hmm. they don't have despite the fact dupont is a manufacturer but in china they don't have any manufacturing facility and they they do have a lab Interestingly, they do have a lab in Shanghai, um, but mostly they sell stuff. They sell dye stuff in China. They act like a trading firm, but obviously they sell uh, exclusively Dupont products. They don't sell. They don't handle any other products. They don't do. Um, they only do export from U.S. to China. They don't do import. So mm -hmm. it's that's the nature of the business, and they, I, they they started in 1920s. Okay, mm -hmm. so so by mm -hmm. 1940s they were still uh, already in China for a couple of decades, and it's actually under the leadership of the same guy who started the Chinese business and uh, and opened up the Chinese market, and and. and and the business, it's a long history. They they started in the early 1920s. They they bypassed the middleman. That's a that's not a unique approach, but that's a special approach because mm. many foreign business in China at that time relied on the Chinese comfort doll. It's like a like an agent, a single agent, and who is an established businessman in China and handle their China business. Mm. And, like like handle everything for them and they they can rely on a single uh, middleman and to to distribute products in China this is not a dominating form of um a business a, a form to enter the Chinese market back then but this was one major path and dupont on the other hand chose something else they built their own sales network in China. Okay, they hired in-house salesperson, mostly mm. Chinese, and they those were young men who oftentimes had ed education in United States, or or they went to missionary school in China, who mm. were which were taught in English. They were good at English. They got background engineering or science background, and good college graduates, and sometimes even even um. 
people with graduate degrees, and those people act uh, as salesperson, mm -hmm. and they trying to promote the Dupont products and 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 um, contact with the local agents, and therefore by through the in-house salesperson and commissioned sales agents in China, they built a, a, a sales network. It's pretty big sales network that mm -hmm. reach to different different local markets they don't contact with the um with the customers consumers directly but sure. they they reach to the local markets and the the, the smaller local agents local trading firms and and that and can significantly reduce the cost of commission because mm -hmm. if you rely on a single middleman he's going to charge a lot Okay, and, and mm -hmm. that that's that's something this this guy and this China manager Dupont China manager were doing in China from the 1920s to the 1930s, mm -hmm. and then the war started. Japan invaded China and took it over 1938. Um, for their own safety, they decided that they are going to the American employees and left China, went back to the U.S. And however, they they let their Chinese employee to be in charge for a while. So the business was maintained for a couple of more years. And then harbor happened the Japanese took over <laughs> entirely and they they took over their, their 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 lab their office and then the business was forced to close then eventually after the war and uh, and the Dupont managers went back they 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 managed to to repossess most of their pre-war properties and and their business resumed and my story actually started from there mm -hmm. and I, I talk about um, the the brief period be between 1946 and 1949 and then focus on the 1949 what they experienced and 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 then from 1949 to 1951 to see it's actually they they made all those decisions within a very short time period to close up their Shanghai headquarters and then to their Hong Kong headquarters and and the, the Hong Kong office was when the Hong Kong office was closed, their new China manager didn't even arrive. They hired somebody else for the Hong Kong office after that become the new headquarters. The, the new newly hired person didn't even arrive before they changed their mind and everything's closed up. Mm, wow. Okay. Well, what, what was the experience with 1949? Um 1949 for 1949 it's a it's the it's the time period it's this is the end of the civil war in China. The communists come to take it over. And Shanghai was in the spring of 1949, Shanghai was, was uh, attacked and then uh, occupied by the communists. Then even after the, the occupation took place, like within one month, there mm. were military conflicts for, for a brief period. Um, however, um, the, the, the city was still under attack even after the communists took it over mm -hmm. and the nationalists continued to attack it and by by arrow bombing and and that 
that was a very um, that was a period with a lot of anxiety, not only for the Americans and obviously for the Chinese businessmen as well. I've been working on those Chinese businessmen for a while um, before I, I moved to the DuPont project. So, so I was trying to do the comparison as well. Okay, 1949 in short, this is the year when the communists take, take over, take place, and China faced a major regime change, and the new government started to, um, at, at first they started to gradually enforce the new economic policy, and then that um, transformation was accelerated from 1952. So, so there was a there was a sudden um, change of policy after 1952, and then and they start to come, like nationalize the private business, and this is what they call the socialist transition. Everything become a socialist uh, economy, and then the planned economy replaced the market economy. Everything has been changed dramatically after uh, after the early 1950s. And if that's the that's the change you are asking, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so yeah. it obviously made the Dupont Company radically reconsider their involvement in the country. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Exactly. And and. To my own surprise, because because I I was familiar with the Chinese business during this time period and the change in Chinese policy obviously affect them a lot, not only affect their business, but also affect their themselves personally and their those kind of social movement when those kind of social movements started and they were many of them were personally accused for different crimes and and in fact in year 1952, 1951, that was the year a lot of Shanghai um, businessmen, they, they called the Shanghai capitalists, committed suicide under, mm-hmm. under the pressure. And and so, so that was the experience of the Chinese businessmen and their business in, in, in the same period, 1951-52. But to my surprise, um, the DuPont decided to close their business entirely in China, not because of, not only because of, not directly because of the change in Chinese policy. In Mm -hmm. fact, the reason they chose to close up their Hong Kong office is because the war, Korean war. Okay, mm-hmm. and China mm-hmm. joined the Korea War um, on the side of North Korea in in October nineteen fifty. Yeah, October nineteen fifty. Then quickly after China joined the war, U.S. government um, announced the sanction on China, and then Dupont find itself um, that it's it's banned to export products to china and and with that ban economic ban they they could do nothing about it okay and they lost all their business in china there was no they they see no point stay there and then that that's the reason they close up their office and mm-hmm. left china entirely and that that's different that that that's something new i found and to this 
U.S. company would affect them directly. Obviously, the U.S. policy was a response to the changing Chinese policy, but what affect them directly was not the the, the Chinese new new Chinese policy. It was the new U.S. policy, mm. and and they they were like. They, they were businessmen. They care about the profits, and they do not care too much about the 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 new the changing ideology ideology and new. In another word, they're going to stay if the business if they still have business in China. And when everything changed, they 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 got left. They got nothing left. They, there was no market. There was no opportunity, and that's why they left. Mm. Wow, what an interesting story. What materials in the Hagley collections did you access to help you uncover this? I I use a small collection, DuPont China, and um, there's a DuPont China collection about the, the the their business in China, and it's it's very small compared to other uh, Hackley uh, archive collections. I, I know Hackley; it's like a gold mine for <laughs> for business history. I I feel every business history, no matter which country you focus on, you got to go to Hackley <laughs> once mm-hmm. at least once in your lifetime. That's that's like a like a treasure box and <laughs> but for for the dupont business in china this is a small collection like i early mentioned um the the, the, the their business suspended during the um, japanese invasion mm-hmm. so so i assume they lost all their early archives I, that happens a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of Chinese business uh, lost their early archives after the war ended, and and then um, the archives includes mostly post-war material after 1946. Actually, 1946 is the year their their Dupont managers returned to China. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also this small collection focuses mostly about um, the communication between Wilmington and China, and mm-hmm. which includes two offices, the uh, Hong Kong office and the Shanghai office. Hong Kong office existed before it become the new headquarter. It was chosen as the new headquarter. Um, but uh, previously, um, the Shanghai office was the main office. Hong Kong office was the smaller one. And then <clears throat> the, the communication between the, the, the managers in those two, uh, um, two offices and the, 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 their supervisors in the headquarter. And that's the, the majority of the archives about. And, and they were mostly in the form of letters business letter most of most of them are business letter and some of the letters are personal and like talk, talking about personal issue and and those are the the most interesting ones and i can see a lot of details about the, their lives those american businessmen managers in china like like um, how the the they were hired what kind of salary they receive and 
and what kind of pension package they had. Hmm. And they, I think in one case, they were trying to negotiate a small pension package for, for Russian, in Russian they hired on spot in China. And th those are very interesting details. And also like the, what kind of benefits they receive and what kind of uh, activities got they, they got reimbursement uh, like during the travel they uh, when they travel from US to China and um, their how, how many luggage they they were allowed and um, to 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 ship for free uh, mm -hmm. like the expenses covered by the by the company and in one case some 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 guy lost his luggage and there's a certain limits you got to cover your loss and get reimbursed from the from the main office and and also i i remember there was a letter they trying to talk to the headquarters to decide if they want to uh, purchase a, a bunch of apartments for their uh, American employees and in China, or they want to provide a special allowance for those employees to rent apartment by themselves. And also there, there are even details about what kind of furnitures were in mm -hmm. those apartment. And there, there was one letter even mentioned the rocks. <laughs> so that, there's a lot of very interesting detail tells us their lives in China. And also um, there was one crucial moment, the, the, the spring of uh, 1949, when, when Shanghai was under attack and there were military conflicts and there was a lot of tension, anxiety in the city. And they, they, were, they were concerned about the future of the business and the business technically stopped. They could not ship anything out, ship anything in the city and due to the military conflicts between the nationalists and the communists. And at that moment, the China manager wrote many letters to the Hong Kong manager because I, I assume he could not reach uh, uh, Wilmington at that point, hmm. probably because they couldn't send mail to Wilmington. So he wrote a lot of letters to the Hong Kong manager and explain his situation, explain his his concern. His family were uh, were still was still with him in Shanghai. He was talking about how much he wished he had already sent his wife and children hmm. back to the U.S. and he's concerned about his um, not his personal safety but his his family's safety but at the same time he showed some sort of optimism that mm. that that surprised me he said in the same letter he's concerned about his safety and he's also mentioned that and there was a common consensus in the business community in Shanghai that they believe even after the communist takeover, this new communist government is going to promote industry mm. in China. They're going to build Chinese economy. If they do so, they're going to still need international trade. And they're going to do as much international trade 
as their as the previous regime did, mm-hmm. and that kind of confidence it's interesting to find. But at the same time, that echoed the confidence of the Chinese Chinese businessmen during this roughly the same period, mm-hmm. right after the communist takeover, and they were quite optimistic, and they see. Um, some they 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 see I don't think they see a bright future, but they think they are going to survive. Hmm. And the logic behind this, at least for the for the Chinese managers, Chinese businessmen, was like, we survived the Japanese occupation, and those were the Japanese. And the new government that's run by the Chinese, how bad it can be. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of that kind of optimism it's uh, it's it's shelled through the entire business community, but things gradually changed after mm. that. That's fascinating. There seem to be a lot of unexpected uh, twists in this story. Yes, and it's a, I, I found a lot of valuable archive, archive material. I found a lot of interesting details. But there's one thing I it's missing in this mm. archive collection, unfortunately, is that the, their on-site activities in China. Mm. It focuses, mm-hmm. It's mostly letters, communications between Wilmington and China, but I don't see anything like... Letters or communication between the um, China manager, the the American managers and their Chinese employees. Mm. I don't see anything um, those Chinese employees were doing trying to maintain their business and their contacts with the local sales agents. And also, one thing that surprised me is that I don't, I haven't seen anything. I I haven't go through all the archive. Material yet. I took the photos. I haven't got the chance to read all of them. But I, I didn't, I didn't find any direct communication between the um, uh, Dupont managers and the 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 Chinese government bureaucrats. Hmm. I think in a in a in a chaotic environment like this, like in, in a in a situation when they face major political changes they they are they i assume they're going to approach somebody who know the person in the new communist government and i i assume they would want to make this direct contact with somebody who's going to be in charge and and get a sense what's going to happen but i didn't see that I, that surprised me. The the uh, Dupont managers relying a lot uh, on their communication with with the the other foreigners, uh, other mm. foreign diplomats, mostly American diplomats in Shanghai for their information, but they did not have direct contact with the with the Chinese government officials and that that surprised me and by con- by contrast a lot of chinese businessmen at that time especially the the so-called industrialist who who's the one who invested in industrial firms and they were actually approached by the communist government 
Mm -hmm. And the communist government would send people and th that that they believe can be trusted by the by the so-called capitalists and persuade them to stay in China to contribute to the development of um, the, 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 the economy of this new government. But that kind of communication is missing mm -hmm. in this American story. I, that I don't know. That mm. maybe, maybe, maybe that specific letters were make missing, or maybe I haven't reached that part yet. Mm. But I didn't find that. Mm. No, I know you're at the very beginning of this project, but I wonder yeah. whether it might have um, some implications for the present day, uh, where there is um, uh, an extremely important economic relationship across the Pacific between China and the United States. Um, and one that is uh, increasingly uh, fraught in recent years. Yeah, and that's actually that's actually um, the reason I'm interested in this project. I, there's there's two main reasons behind my choice, and the first it's because the COVID and the, the pandemic, China adopted a very um, uh, extreme travel policy during the past couple of years, and I was not able to travel to China for archive mm -hmm. material. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt I, I was trapped here. I need to do something, and I figure I, I'll do something about American business, American investment in China, so I can have easy access to archives, and I don't have to travel to China, I can't write something based based on uh, what I got here. Okay, mm -hmm. so that was a simple reason, and also I have been interested in the in the 1950s, early 1950s for a while, and I know what what the Chinese businessman experienced. I, I want to do a comparison. Okay, and another reason is what you just mentioned: the changing geopolitical uh, ge environment, the deteriorating U.S.-China relations for in some way it's different obviously it's different but mm -hmm. in some some way this was similar to the to the late 1940s early 1950s and i was i was i was thinking let me go back to the history to see in those early moment that that was a, another a, a, the first major uh, economic decoupling between China and the US and to see what it, how it happened and why did it happen and if by any chance we can avoid it to happen again what should should we do mm. and one thing I noticed from that story from the story in the history is that the businessmen, they were crazy people. They're, they they care about profits. They're going, like I just mentioned, they, they're going to stay in China if they were not kicked out. Okay, so they are going to stay there and they're going to continue to do this, do business and this kind, kind of a commercial context, the commercial connection is going to, is going to be very helpful for the people in US and the people in China to understand each other, to maintain this normal communication. And that this business communication can be extended to other field as well. And this is always a good thing. And they are making contribution. We should support them. I'm a historian, but 
<laughs> I think we should support the business community. They're 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 going to do their job unless something extraordinary is going to happen, like a war. Mm-hmm. What happened in the past, that's what I learned. That was the mm-hmm. Korean War. That was China and the US participation in the Korean War. And if we can possibly avoid a military conflict, I think we should be able to manage the 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 some sort of maybe uh, maybe a declined US China commercial contact, but still we are going to maintain some 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 degree of contact commercial contact. Well, that's a, a hopeful message for the future. Um, and Professor Pung, thank you so much for sharing this project. I can't wait to see more of it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you. Thank uh, Hackley for the opportunity and for me to to look at your archive. It's a it's a place with great facility. I really enjoy my week there. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for saying so. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G. L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.